State aid cases and multinationals are in their heyday. Just ask Fiat, Apple, Angie in the main event of today's discussion, Amazon. In case you've been living under a rock on May 12th, 2021, the General Court of the EU annulled the European Commission's ruling that Luxembourg provided state aid to Amazon as per a 2003 tax ruling. On today's episode of The Fiona Show, Transfer Pricing, we're taking a fine-tooth comb to the Amazon versus European Commission case and what multinationals can take away from the legal battle's inner workings. Joining us today is Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut, Richard Pomp, to discuss. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Less is more, in Denmark at least. This June, the Danish Ministry of Taxation proposed a draft bill that would eliminate transfer pricing documentation requirements around domestic controlled transactions. Can I get a woot woot? The requirements have been in place since 2004 and were originally enacted to align with EU rules around freedom of establishment. But it looks like times are changing. As for the new draft bill, the tax authority is hoping to slash taxpayers' administrative burden, which couldn't come at a better time considering Denmark's new mandatory submission around transfer pricing documentation. The bill is open for discussion until August 18th, 2021, and if passed, would apply to financial years starting January 1st, 2021 or after. It's a slam dunk for Jordan. No, not that Jordan. This is a tax podcast. After all, the Middle Eastern country has employed its very first set of transfer pricing rules around related parties as part of regulation number 40 of 2021. The documentation requirements include preparation of master file, local file, country-by-country country report and notification, and transfer pricing disclosure forms. The new rules are effective as of now, and so are the penalties. You don't waste any time, do you, Jordan? Late filing will cost public and private companies around 1,400 U.S. dollars or 1,000 Jordanian dinar. Jordanian taxpayers aren't the only ones who will need to retrace their transfer pricing steps. Entities conducting related party transactions should double back on their current policies and business operations to make sure everything is in line going forward. Help is on the way in Madagascar. The Ministry of Economy and Finance recently released a guidance to address transfer pricing documentation requirements. If you're looking for the highlight reel, you've come to the right place. Taxpayers are required to prepare and submit a local and master file if conducting transactions with related parties. And you can't put a price tag on compliance. No, really. The authorities want to see any and all transactions, no matter the cost. All documentation must be in French and is submitted via electronic submission or hard copy. As for the deadlines, companies with a financial year-end date of December 31st, 2020, have been granted an extension from May 15th to October 31st, 2021. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. 
Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here right now with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Professor of Law at the University of Connecticut, Professor Richard Pomp, to discuss the Amazon EU state aid case. In fact, I'm going to hand things off to Mimi to lead this discussion. Mimi, you have the floor. Thank you, Matthew. Professor Pomp, we're so excited to have you back. I know you were a star feature on our R&D podcast episode. And now you're back with us on the transfer pricing side. First, I know you've had quite the robust career. You're an award-winning professor and author, an expert witness who has testified in more than 130 cases, a consultant to states, foreign countries, the IRS, and the Fortune 50. Did you set out to accomplish all these things, or, or did they just happen organically? Tell us about your experiences. Well, I don't know if you believe in miracles, Mimi, but <laughs> sheer serendipity. I backed into every job I had. Unlike some of my students today that are so cunning about their careers, I get questions like, Prof, should I go into ROTC for a couple of years so that when I run for office, I'll have some military experience in my background? Who would have thought in those terms when I was in, in school? It's an amazing generation. They're facing a tougher job market, and that may be why they're so driven. We knew we were going to get jobs. We didn't have mm -hmm. to really plan anything. So, no, I was going to do a PhD at MIT, and I arrived in Cambridge. I met my PhD advisor, and then I went over to Harvard Law School, where I had some friends from undergraduate, and I went to class with them. And, and loved it. I saw some great classroom teachers. It was all in English. It was not this highfalutin mathematics that I was used to in, in quantum physics. I could understand everything. And I went to see the dean of admissions, unannounced, which shows you how naive I was, and just sort of barged into his office. And I think I said something very sophisticated, like, how do you get into this place? And he blew me off, which I understand. He, he just completely dissed me. <laughs> and it really annoyed me. I thought, wow, I'll show him. So I took the law boards and did well, got into Harvard. And then I had to make a really hard decision. Do I do the PhD? Do I go to law school? And so I opted for law school. Then Vietnam came around. So I took two years off for the war. And then at that point, I could have gone for the PhD or I could just finish up the JD in two years. So that was the path of least resistance. So wow. it's not a terribly thought out decision, was it? It wasn't <laughs> one of these six-year-olds who knew they always wanted to be a, a lawyer. So <laughs> <laughs> that's life. And it worked out fine. 
That is life. And it's a tremendous life. And, you know, it's interesting, I guess you focus on tax law and I'm curious, any specific component of tax law that still challenges you? I'll tell you why I focused on tax law. You talk about serendipity. I was the kind of law student that I now loathe and despise. (laughs) I was unprepared. Mm -hmm. it, It struck me as silly to spend a lot of time preparing before the fact when after the fact, you'd at least see what was expected, what the highlights were, what the professor was doing. And so I was always unprepared. And I was probably six weeks behind. And I would go up and ask my tax professor a question. And he must have thought I was reviewing the material, that I was really diligent and earnest. When I wasn't reviewing it all, I was trying to learn it for the first time. (laughs) But I was asking things that we went over much earlier in the class. And then a position opened up to teach students from developing countries who came to Harvard to kind of learn best practices. And these were rising stars, the commissioner of taxation, people like that. You know, it's a boondoggle for many of them, but some of them were quite serious. And he said to me, how would you like to teach them a a fairly simple introduction to U.S. taxation? And it paid well, and I had loans to pay back, and I said, fine. And that sort of gave me a taste of teaching and and tax. Then I did a stint in Amsterdam, editing a journal on taxation, European taxation. It was all, all okay. It wasn't like a burning passion of mine, but it was fine. Got me to Europe. Then I was going to work in, in London until I converted pounds to dollars and I realized how exploited I was going to be. And then I got an offer to come back and start teaching at Harvard. Well, that was, you know, you can't turn that down. And that's how it all started. So I just kept backing into things wow. from one, one job to another. Yes. If only life was that simple for everybody, right? So, yes, but. <laughs> it does get harder. And so does tax, which is really yes. what your question was about. It is so much harder to be competent today because there is so much to learn and so much to be sensitive to. You know, when I started about 40 years or so, the definition of an expert was someone who knew more and more about less and less. But that doesn't work today. You know, the world has shrunk and we we can't live in, in silos anymore. That when I consult or write or teach, I have to be aware of state taxes, federal taxes, international taxes, cryptocurrency, and pretty soon space law. You know, as it looks like we're going to colonize the moon and Mars and fighting over natural resources. And that's a, a real difference from when I started off. And I'll give you just one quick anecdote if we have time. A, a client called me and said, you know, we have a question about guilty, one of these new innovations that we have in our our tax code. Mm -hmm. And I always ask, well, send me an organizational chart because otherwise it's hard to follow everything. And he said, fine, what size would you like? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, I'm thinking eight by 12, whatever piece of paper is nine by 12. He said, oh, no, no, way too big, way too big. And, And I, you know, I wasn't tracking way too big. I said, well, what are you going to send? He said, three by five, we'll send it Hmm. to you, which I thought was odd. And uh, two days later, I think it was EHL pulled up, rang the bell, and two of them pulled out three feet by five feet. Oh, my gosh. Container, wooden (laughs) container that they helped me break apart 
Wow. And in it was the organization of China. <laughs> Hundreds of entities. Some oh I didn't even recognize. And I said, what, what is this entity, the name? Oh, that's one we created. Yeah, it doesn't really exist under their corporate law, but we think it, it would be accepted. So they were making up their own entities even. Wow. Just there's a remarkable world that we are now in. Now, much more difficult. Much more so, complicated. Yes. Yes. So many ways. I, I can only imagine what the purpose of those entities was, but we'll get to that in a second, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. One one simple answer, tax minimization. <laughs> so, <laughs> you could bet on it. <laughs> exactly. And, and so clearly you've had a lot of experience in this area. How have you seen this global tax landscape evolve? You started in U.S. tax law. You learned about European tax law. And, and clearly you're, you're seeing what's happening with the global minimum tax proposals right now, I'm sure. How have you seen yep. this tax landscape evolve? Well, it's whack-a-mole as yeah. <laughs> usual. The countries are responding. Maybe the corporations went a little too far and killed the golden goose, but we have the G20, we have the OECD, we have the EU all working on changing the architecture of the international tax system. And we may be serious this time. We always have outliers like Ireland that aren't going to want to have their position as a tax haven changed or threatened. And so those have to be dealt with. Uh, mm -hmm. We have Caribbean countries, same thing. But it looks like there's a serious push. There's been a lot of uh, exposés about the amount of international tax minimization that results. I won't call it evasion because most of the time it is not evasion. Right, most of the right. time it's simply, right, simply working with the interfacing of various countries' laws. And they don't interface well. Agreed. And mm -hmm. And we have old concepts like permanent establishment. And then we have these fancy techniques like the double Irish sandwich that plays off one treaty against another. All very creative tax planning, by the way. I mean, this is a field that attracts some awfully smart people. Some yeah. would say a waste of talent, but some awfully smart people yeah. with one mission, and that is to minimize tax. So I think... The international community is serious this time. Yeah. And part of it is it's a digital economy, old concepts like permanent establishment, which is at the, at the heart of all our international tax treaties, that required a physical presence. Well, mm -hmm. what an obsolete concept, right? You need a physical presence to make money? Not anymore. And so I think we are really seeing a sea change for the first time. And fine, I'm all in favor of it. Agreed. And, you know, I think this is a good segue into our point of discussion here, which is really about the Amazon state aid case, which addresses some of these very strategic tax planning structures that you alluded to. So first things first, can you give us the general overview of this Amazon state aid case? What were the main issues at hand? And, and can you chart the course of the case to the EU general court? Sure. And it is a perfect segue. You're absolutely right. First is concept of state aid, which is not a tax concept. That's what's kind of interesting, that there is an attempt to use a non-tax concept to deal with international tax planning. 
that state aid is any aid granted by a member state which distorts competition by favoring certain undertakings and not others. So in the case of the Amazon situation, did Luxembourg cut a sweet deal with Amazon that wasn't available to anyone else? And if the answer is yes, then it is possible that this concept of state aid, this prohibition on on state aid has been violated. And if so, that wasn't a holding in Amazon, obviously, but if it were to have been found to have been violated, then Amazon would have paid back about 250 million euros, close Mm -hmm. to 300 million US to Luxembourg. And it's kind of interesting. So you have Luxembourg saying, we don't want the money. We didn't engage in in state aid and prohibited state aid. But that's what the case is about. It doesn't start off as a tax case. It starts off as a violation of this prohibition on state aid. And the structure here is not as complicated as my three by five feet organizational chart would (laughs) suggest. You had, you know, the the names of these entities are a little cumbersome. So let's just call it the IP holding company that's headquartered in Luxembourg, has no people, doesn't really do much. It's a very formal type of entity. That entity licenses intellectual property from Amazon Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And then enters into a sub-license with, and let's call it the operating company. It's really a holding company that holds a lot of the European Amazon companies. So again, the, the structure is fairly simple. You have an IP holding company that licenses the software and intellectual property that it received from the U.S. parent, it licenses it to the operating companies and gets a royalty in return. And the whole case is about how much should that royalty be? And Amazon, back in 2003, entered into a what we call an APA, an advanced pricing agreement with Luxembourg, and they agreed on a methodology that basically gave about 80% of the combined profits of the holding company and the operating company. They they shifted 80% of those profits to the holding company. So why? Well, the royalty that is paid by the operating company is deductible. It's an ordinary and necessary cost of doing business. So that entity gets a deduction. The mm-hmm. higher the royalty, the bigger the deduction. The bigger the deduction, the less Luxembourg tax the operating company is going to pay. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's fine and good, but won't there be a tax when the IP holding company receives the royalty? And this is where clever tax planning enters the picture. Under Luxembourg law, 
the IP holding company was a partnership. So it's a pass-through entity. Those royalties get passed through to the partners of this partnership. They are in the, well, they're in other countries. They're not people resident in Luxembourg. So the pass-through entity, if it's respected by other countries, will shift the royalty income from the Luxembourg entity to entities outside or persons outside of Luxembourg. So no Luxembourg tax on this. So you have a deduction to the operating company that is not being offset by any Luxembourg tax on the IP holding company. Under U.S. law, that holding company is a corporation. So what we're seeing here is the clash of two sovereigns who take a different view of what constitutes a corporation and what constitutes a partnership. And the fact that the U.S. views that partnership under Luxembourg law as a foreign corporation under U.S. law means there'll be no U.S. tax when those royalties are received by what the U.S. views as a foreign corporation. So the beauty of this is a deduction to the operating company reducing its Luxembourg tax without there being tax paid to anyone. Not bad. Not doesn't bad. Get any sweeter, it doesn't get sweeter <laughs> than that if it were to work. Well, it turns out it did work, at least right now. At least right now, yeah. Let's just say the court has this cumbersome name. Let's just call it the lower court. Okay. And, and it is the lower court that basically struck down the commission and said, for reasons I'll go into kind of one by one, the commission, you are wrong in attacking this. It does not constitute state aid. This is an arm's length payment of royalties. Uh, you may not like it, but it's certainly consistent with our arms length principles and doctrines. So that, in a nutshell, is the big overview. Now, the case has not yet been appealed. It might be appealed. We don't know. There is certainly a right to, to appeal it. But for now, we just have this tremendous victory by Amazon with a real tongue lashing. You know, to an American used to courts really being somewhat gentle with the taxpayers in front of them and their counsel, the court gave the commission, to me, a real tongue lashing and basically criticized it whenever it had a chance to do so. It's like, hey, you can't just make up rules. You tested the wrong party. And I'll explain what that means. That's really the heart of this case. Right. is what we call which party to test. And you know that, of course, from your experience in transfer pricing. Yes. Were they selecting the Lux operating company or, or the, the IP holding company as the tested party in this situation, right? Yes, exactly right. Amazon said the tested party should be the operating company. 
because they're the ones that are really producing low-value-added activities. And the tested party should be an entity that you can calculate what a fair return on its activities should be. In other words, it should look similar to other entities. So you can actually take a look at something comparable and say, okay, well, we see people like you get a small markup on your costs. And that makes you a good tested party because the tested party should be one for which there's comparables so that we can test it, as we say. And you can try to control for as many of those different factors as possible. That's one of the reasons why, as a practitioner, you typically look at the less complex entity so that you don't have to worry about all the variations in terms of functions or risks or assets. So we try to control for all of that. So looking at the less complex side in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely right. But the commission did not like that answer because it put very little profit into the operating company. They said, no, no, the tested party should be the holding company. And then they went on and they said, and you know what? This holding company is kind of passive. It really doesn't do anything. Yes, it makes payments to its parent in the U.S. under what we call a cost-sharing agreement, but that's not active. That's just a ministerial act of writing a check. It really doesn't do anything. And so it doesn't have costs that ought to be taken into account when we test it against other entities. Now, one of the problems is this is unique. Amazon IP. You can't look to other entities and see what a fair royalty would be for the use of this type of IP. It's unique. It's Amazon. Where am I going to go to compare Amazon? They are in a dominant position. Some would say a monopoly position. And that's one of the things when you go to pick the entity you want to test, it's got to be one for which you can get comparable. And in fact, the OECD in 1995 said that in general, an IP should not be the tested party because of the difficulty of getting comparables. Well, the commission just basically flaunted that and they said, okay, well, we don't think you have many costs, IP holding company, but whatever costs we will take into account we will then mark it up by 5%. Where'd they get the 5%? Well, (laughs) right, that there was a report by this entity that consults with the commission on transfer pricing. That report by them came out, I think it was 2010, after the APA, which was entered into in 2003, And that report said, you know what, 5% is pretty good for low-value-added activities. And according to the commission, the holding company was involved in low-value-added activities. 
because it didn't do anything that was very active. So mm-hmm. instead of looking at what was represented, that IP, very valuable IP, the commission shifted the focus. So what did they do? Well, they didn't really do anything. And so we're going to use a 5% markup that comes from this Joint Transfer Pricing Forum. And that is an entity, uh, we don't have anything like it in the U.S., that assists and advises the European Commission on transfer pricing tax matters. Well, that's fine, but it was 2010, and that 5% may or may not be applicable in this kind of situation. The court, lower court, actually chided the commission for using a number that basically they just took from a report and didn't ask whether that is an appropriate number in dealing with the Amazon IP holding company. And besides that, it's 2010. You can't retroactively go back to a year that wasn't in play when the APA was entered into and basically say you violated our rules on state aid because you didn't properly anticipate what's going to happen in 2010. You know, it's, of course, it's seven years later. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Why wouldn't you know what's happening seven years from now? So, (laughs) yes, you can see how desperate the commission was. They just couldn't believe that 80 percent of the combined profit should end up in an entity that Luxembourg isn't taxing and therefore an example of a sweet deal violating the state aid prohibition. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits penalties and adjustments and our technology is available for one flat fee a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant again apologies big four stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions ai driven transfer pricing software it's no wonder we're the global leader in ai driven tax solutions there we go again i'm so sorry big you know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp i was going to recap that a little bit i think that ultimately this past may and in may of 2021 the court has basically annulled the european commission's decision on this that the apa provided amazon with 250 million euros of state aid and to your point it centers around whether or not those royalties paid for the intangibles were paid in accordance with the arm's length principle because Amazon relied on the transactional net margin method, that profit-based method to evaluate whether or not their operating companies were earning a sufficient return, right? 
And so this is a, a, a big win for Amazon, really, at least as it stands right now. Yes. You serve as a counsel and litigation consultant to law firms, corporations, accounting firms, state tax administrations. What makes this state aid case compelling to you? Well, it may be less compelling depending on what the G20 and the OECD and the EU are going to do at, uh, let's see, it's July 6th, they're meeting, I think, next week. And all bets are off right now at the, whether this case has legs or not. It may have the rug pulled out from under it if there's really an attempt to, to rewrite the rules and replace arm's length pricing with something familiar to people in the state corporate income tax world, formulary apportionment where we sort of put together Humpty Dumpty. We don't respect the separate entities if they're related to one another. And we say, no, we're going to combine you and then apply a formula. And the formula could be based on payroll, property, sales. You know, that's to be determined. But we in the U.S. at the state level have had so many bad experiences with arm's length pricing that quite early on, we developed this this methodology of combined reporting, which just blows right through that arm's length price. We just put you back together again. It's like a consolidated return and doesn't go down this path of what the arm's length price should be, which is really a complicated issue. And you could reverse engineer it. You know, when when we advise corporations, we have a range of methodologies. And this TNMM, which American listeners may not be familiar with because it's an OECD term, but it's similar to our comparable profit method, as you know. Right, right. I think a while ago. So uh, the the U.S. listeners who aren't as conversant with the OECD language, just think comparable profit method. You know, these are all, they are fancy names, but their goal is the same, is to take a transaction between related parties and try to figure out what would have happened if the parties were unrelated. Well, the parties aren't unrelated and the IP is unique. So you're asking a virtually impossible question to answer with any rigor. And we just have different ways of approaching it. And of course, when we have a client and we're faced with different ways, we do whatever is going to minimize attacks and kind of reverse engineer it. You know, nothing immoral, unethical, illegal. After all, you have a range of options. You're not going to pick the option that is going to maximize taxes. So you're perfectly entitled to use a, a minimization strategy. And that's what we do. So, so what is the real takeaway from Amazon? I would say, and then the press has not really emphasized this enough, it is what the commission, the lower court has said about the commission's use of the tested party, that it really gave them a bench slap for using the wrong party in the court's mind. And that's an important takeaway because it sends a message going forward 
You're not going to have to worry about these IP holding companies, which are all over the place, of course. This is standard orthodox tax planning that the tested party is going to be the operational party. The commission did make an argument, but it was raising it for the first time, which the court also criticized them for, saying, you know what, that operational company, that's not so low value added the way Amazon would suggest. They're doing stuff and they are adding value by what they're doing. And so maybe we should look at something like a profit split method. We should see what the profit of the combined holding company and operational company is, and then use some methodology to simply share that profit between the two entities. And we call that a profit split method. And the commission raised it for the first time during the proceeding. And the lower court basically said, hey, you know, too late. You you have to give the taxpayer notice. You can't spring something on them after the fact. So that's an important takeaway. I wonder if the outcome would have been different if they had brought up the profit split to begin with and perhaps use that as the beginning point instead of the alternative point, right? Because trying to argue that an IP holding company should be the tested party and that they don't really do anything is a little bit, you know, I it didn't have much substance, right? As what they were trying to argue, which was IP holding code didn't have much substance. But <laughs> I wonder if the outcome would have been different. What do you think? I think we'll be able to see going forward yeah. because... <laughs> The court didn't say to the commission, there's nothing to your argument. It is a better argument. There's something, you know, if you were to describe this to a lay person and you said, well, you know, the holding company has no employees, which is true. Yes. <laughs> it really is. No employees, no real substance, as you point out. This is all form over substance. It's exactly what the Pillar 1, Pillar 2 projects uh, under consideration now want to do away with. They want to better align the tax with activities. And this is quite formal. You're absolutely right. And I'll tell you some of the things the operating company did, which makes you wonder just how low value they were, they adapted these technologies that they licensed for the European market They had to translate stuff. They had to uh, deal with the pricing and the inventory and the marketing, and they had their own customer data list and all that. It's not like the argument was fanciful. You are quite right. They just made it too late. And the next case, they ought to learn from this. I'll tell you what else. Now, Mimi, you are so used to seeing expert reports in your U.S. transfer pricing. I have never seen one in any of these state aid cases. That's got to be the next round. Yes. Of bringing in your experts to testify, here's what the rules require, and I have run the numbers. The commission had speculation. It had arguments. It had no numbers, which, again, the court really scolded it for Hey, you can't win a case like this by telling us you could imagine a different methodology that would raise more money. Show us. 
you know, put your cards on the table, do the hard work, right, right. show us. And to me, that was an invitation to the commission how to do this better going forward. So you may be right. We may see the split profit method with experts who have run the numbers, done all the sophisticated work that you're so used to seeing in the domestic context. Mm-hmm. That's what my advice would be, of course, to the commission. To look at the numbers. I, I think I think your earlier point is well taken. Ultimately, these state aid cases are not exactly transfer pricing cases, but clearly it relates to the favorable tax conditions that allow companies to take advantage of tax arbitrage situations through proper transfer pricing policies, right? In this particular situation, the European Commission didn't justify its methodology, didn't sufficiently prove out its hypothesis that the transactional net margin method or this profit-based method resulted in a tax advantage, resulted in state aid, it violated state aid policies. And it also, I think, justified this this other fact that you you pointed out, which is that the OECD guidelines or that the markups that you determined after the fact cannot be applied retrospectively, right? So yep. that needs to be taken into consideration as well. No, you nailed it. You nailed yep. it. I'll emphasize one thing. The court has put a very high burden of proof on the commission and they have not satisfied it. That's one way to look at this case. It's a failure of burden of proof. And had they had better proof, as you suggest, if they had come out early, guns blazing, Mm -hmm. with experts and a different methodology, one that would have some intuitive appeal, I, I might say, would have been a different case. Exactly right question to ask. So that's our next iteration. This case, it marks another major loss for the European Commission. In terms of these state aid cases and transfer pricing, to note Apple and Starbucks, what do you think this says about the European Commission's commitment to cracking down on unfair tax advantages? Is this going to detract them? Are they going to start taking a little bit of a backseat or perhaps investing more, to your point, in those experts, in those requirements, right? Yeah, I would say they should feel embarrassed. They've lost a number of high-profile cases. Mm-hmm. Apple, of course, was billions of dollars. Yes. Uh, that was worth more than, a couple times more than Amazon. Yeah. They, firstly, I have no idea why they haven't changed what they do. Mm-hmm. The handwriting's on the wall. The court has scolded them. They've been told essentially what the court wants to see. So why don't you change what you've been doing? Are you so trapped by what hasn't worked in the past? You're not nimble enough to pivot? So I don't know. Now, I think these losses probably will fuel the BEPS project and everything else, the pillar one, pillar two, everything else that's being discussed right now. You know, in October, the G20 meet, and they may take a vote then to endorse what is coming out of the OECD and, and EU. And so we may be off and running in a different direction. And these state aid cases may be held up as evidence of why we need a different architecture 
for this new international tax world. So in that sense, these losses may come to be quite valuable. Things have to get worse before they get better, old Marxist saying, I think. And so, yes, these, these are pretty bad losses. And Gosh. if they lead to major reform as well, they will have served their purpose. Well, I think there's also some still open state aid cases, right? Nike and Ikea Yes, <laughs> that, that we're going to see. Do you think that the Amazon outcome here could have an impact to those particular cases? Or have you seen any or heard anything about the potential outcome there? Well, in Nike, the commission found aid in its opening decision, which Nike's appealed to the lower court. I would think if I were counsel to the commission on the staff, we would redo everything that we had done at the audit level. And I don't know the procedural rules at the lower court level, but I would say we're taking a pause and we're going back to redo our opening decision. I don't know if they can do it or not. So Starbucks, the the lower court did rule in, in Starbucks' favor and the commission didn't appeal that one. McDonald's commissions found no aid. Fiat, the court upheld the commission's finding of aid, but that's now being appealed by both Fiat and Ireland to the the higher court. And of course, Apple is under appeal to the higher court. So things are in flux. And again, I expect to see more from the commission. If they keep redoing what they've done, they're going to keep losing. I think the lower court's fed up with them. That's how I read the body language. But eventually we would anticipate that the commission is going to learn from its mistakes as well or learn from history and, and evolve, making it more difficult and challenging for taxpayers to support their positions if they can get their act together, right? So, Yeah. What's that famous saying? Those that don't remember history are doomed to repeat it. That's right. Uh, Yeah, you got to learn. You (laughs) got to learn. learn. You got to learn. Yeah. So the Amazon versus European Commission case has proven to be enlightening and educational, even entertaining in some ways. I mean, I think with this recent loss under its belt, we still see the European Commission continue to be aggressive in its pursuit of tax avoidance, the pursuit of state aid issues. And multinationals are going to need to continue to be on the offensive when it comes to supporting and defending their transfer pricing policies around these highly challenged areas like IP, like royalties. You know, these types of intercompany transactions are are under heavy scrutiny. So, Professor Pop, we sincerely appreciate your time, your perspective. It has been a pleasure. I feel like time is just flown by, but we're at the end of our session, unfortunately. So, <laughs> All right. Well, there can always be part two, depending there, on what the future brings. Oh, my Thank goodness. You, there's there's going to be part two and three. I'm sure this whole year is going to be really interesting with what's happening with the whole digital economy discussions, right? And the, the discussions around global minimum taxation. Do we have time for one footnote? Absolutely. I am not sure that large companies are playing this game going forward. I I know of one that has brought its IP back to the states because mm. they think they see the handwriting on the wall 
with the what's going on at the OECD and the G20. So they are anticipating that these tax minimization strategies are not going to work going forward, and they don't want to spend any time and money on something that's going to be undercut. And and so there is one major high-tech company you'd recognize that has brought its IP back to the States. Amazing. And I think that's the intention. So hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll see what multinationals or how they respond to these, these challenges in the tax regulatory landscape. Professor, thank you so much. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here again with Professor Richard Pomp of the University of Connecticut. We've been talking about Amazon and the EU state aid case so far in this episode, but now comes my favorite part of the show, a segment we like to call our rapid fire round of get to know you questions. Professor Pomp, always the first question in this rapid fire, are you ready? Let's go. <laughs> if you were to pick a different career, we know you love the one you have, but if just just if you had to pick a different one, what would it be and why? I am a novice at cottage cheese sculptures, and I think I would like to spend time just cultivating that. I have a knack for it, it seems. There's some difficulties. If you have an aggressive dog, there goes your sculpture. But yes, that's what I'd like to do is just have a studio and be able to devote myself to cottage cheese sculpturing. Oh, man. I just got my dad one of those charcoal sketch pads. He's a he's a dentist, and, and I've kind of gotten him on this art kick of, of drawing his, his grandchildren and everything. And that just sounds like the perfect retirement art. I don't call them hobbies. You 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 know, retirement's the perfect time to to dive in and get obsessed. And oh man, that sounds like the best. Anyway, what summer activity are you looking forward to most this year? I would like to get a good night's sleep of about seven or eight hours. <laughs> That's my favorite question to any rapid fire. Rapid yeah, uh, I have a dog ever. who disagrees with that. But that would be that would be a goal of mine. Yeah, he can hang out with my cat. They'd get along. <laughs> or maybe they wouldn't. What is a career accomplishment you're most proud of and why? Oh, boy. In, in 1979, I was part of a very small group of academics invited to lecture in China for six weeks on taxation. The 
real agenda the Chinese had is that they were drafting a tax code. But of course, they were so out of touch for so many years. And they invited, there were, I think, three of us, and we went over there, spent six weeks, and worked with them on their first tax code. And that was just a lot of fun. So, Of course, of course. Now, this is an in-depth question, so I'm going to say try to keep it to five words. I'm kidding. What do you think tax law will look like in 50 years, if you'd like to muse on, <laughs> on, on that volume of literature? 50 years. All right. I think artificial intelligence will take over much of the unpleasant nature of tax work, discovery, even writing briefs. There are now programs that can do that, estate planning, uh, leaving us freer for really creative work, less drudgery, more creative work. There are some programs that claim they can predict the outcome of cases. You put in the judge, you put in all the precedent, you put in the facts of your case, and they claim that they can match panels that they have assembled who predict the outcome of the case and the software does, does better. These are all real cases and the software does better. Due diligence, a real time-consuming, boring, tedious function that has to be performed. There is now software. It's, it's holistic. It, heuristic, I guess the word heuristic. It learns as yeah, it goes yeah. along. And uh, that will take all over much of the, the drudgery of due diligence. So that's the optimistic spin. Maybe it will replace us. <laughs> that's the yeah. pessimistic spin. In any event, I will not be around. To <laughs> well, I'll say this, representing a company that develops an artificial intelligence, just to have a full disclosure about it, but I'm painting with broad brushes here. This is just what I've learned making this show for the last two some odd years. What's interesting to me is it seems the human place for the human tax professional in that vision you have 50 years from now in the place artificial intelligence will have in it is that you can't replace the human being in the tax process because they need to deal with governments. And if there's anything we're fairly sure a computer can't do, it's understand how political processes work, how to relate to tax authorities and present to them the best case. At the end of the day, that is an art and just knowing that it's it's other people and it's big messy governments that that keep human beings in play i think there's a poetic irony to that and not, not entirely with without fault or uh <laughs> shall we say unpleasant aesthetics but yeah i find that irony almost kind of beautiful in a way no that's a good point it uh, just may need less of us to do that but uh, yeah. it's a good point who knows what government will look like in 50 years yeah anyway so, all, all but no, questions. the software that, that you folks have developed is very, very impressive. I mean, you are at the forefront of artificial intelligence, which is a good forefront to be at. So, We want to thank Professor Pomp and Mimi for joining us on today's very informative discussion. If you liked this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
That's the Fiona Show transfer pricing, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in transfer pricing. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch everyone next week. 